when it comes to infertility, I think there's a lot of desperation. I think there's a lot of this will never work for me. I think there's been a lot of people that have, you know, told me this will never work. I mean, I just got a beautiful card today from someone who told me that she'd never have kids. And she showed me a picture of her baby. Oh my gosh, she's got four more embryos in the freezer. And I looked back at her chart and I'm thinking, yeah, wow. When she came to see me, she had five miscarriages. Welcome to Fertile Conversations, the IVF and acupuncture podcast, where the journey to parenthood becomes a conversation. I'm your host, Farah Duro, licensed fertility acupuncturist, and we're joined by expert reproductive medicine doctors to answer your most burning questions and unravel the mysteries surrounding conception. Whether you're starting on this path, in the midst of the journey, or simply curious, we've got you covered. Now let's jump in. Hey, hi, this is Dr. Ellen Wood. Welcome back to another fertility and acupuncture Q&A. My name is Dr. Ellen Wood, and I am one of the reproductive endocrinologists board certified at IVFMD. Um, My office is in Cooper City. Um, I've been there for the last 23 years, and tonight we are going to answer some really great questions that were submitted earlier today um, with Dr. Um, Farrar Duro. She is an acupuncturist um, at Florida Complete Wellness. Um, I have just um, invited her to the call. There she is. Hi. I introduced myself a little bit, Dr. Duro. I know you've been doing this with myself. Who else are you? Dr. Dr. Gelman, Dr. Nichols, Mm -hmm. Dr. Bauer. Um, A lot of our physicians have been you know, we've really embraced um, acupuncture as, as one of the adjuvant treatments for our patients to enhance our traditional medical therapies. Yes, and I'm glad, thank you for being here. Uh, someone just said, acupuncture is key to my IVF success, yay. <laughs> it's a small piece, I mean, it takes a village. I mean, it's, I mean, I told it, I told it, I referred a patient today to you and I said, you know what? I said, you need to add the acupuncturist on your team. Yeah. I said, there's so much that's involved I mean, like the medicine part is a part of it, but there's so much involved in infertility. You have to really, when we address patients' fertility issues, we really have to look at, again, everything else that's going on in their life mm-hmm. uh, as it plays such a role. So I, I think, you know, lots of adjuvant therapies and, and looking at lifestyle and, and stress levels are fantastic as far as looking at the whole patient which is key to, to fertility success. That's, that's one of the reasons I love working with you guys too, is I know that you have such a great team approach with that and, um, and you're patient and you allow the body to sort of, you know, work with the body instead of like, okay, let's just blast with everything and then see what happens afterwards. Like that's just not, I think, you know, in the best interest, a lot of times for patients that are, are trying to conceive, they want to give it their all, but they want to have a healthy pregnancy too. And, and they want to come out of it feeling good. So, um, so we do our best. So Dr. Durer, what's your exposure? Like what's your experience with patients with IUI? Cause you see our patients. So yeah, no, you, I mean, definitely. Your thoughts? I hope that we're like, crossing our fingers for a few patients right now that are waiting for their results. And I think we work with it just similar to a natural cycle, you know, less 
heavy as far as medication wise on her body than IVF. But I noticed we've been getting more IVF questions, our IUI questions too. So, and definitely we work with Chinese medicine and acupuncture throughout the whole cycle as well. I think that it's important to also prepare like preconception wise, just like you're doing IVF or naturally, because it's just as important, um, just maybe less medication, but we're still wanting to achieve the same thing, which is healthy pregnancy. So I think there was another question about IUI. I'm just I'm so happy our baby girl turned five months. Thank you for everything. I mean, like, it's so exciting. Like, oh, good I know. Send me a picture. I want to see her. I want to see her. Nice. <laughs> I, yeah, I like happy stories. I know. Again, you know, well, I think as far as the happy stories are concerned, I think when it comes to infertility, I think there's a lot of desperation. I think there's a lot of this will never work for me. I think there's been a lot of people that have, you know, told me this will never work. I mean, I just got a beautiful card today from someone who told me that she'd never have kids. And then she showed me a picture of her baby. Oh my gosh, she's got four more embryos in the freezer. And I looked back at her chart and I'm thinking, yeah, wow. When she came to see me, she had five miscarriages like five miscarriages and she has a baby now and like she's got four others if she ever wants to come back for them in the freezer. But I'm thinking, wow, yeah, that does pretty make you feel pretty desperate. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. you don't want to like flaunt pictures of babies and pregnancies in people's faces, but it's more like it's hope. Like we have so many treatments like we have so, and everybody's not like, this is not a one size fits all type of medicine. This is a type of medicine where we incorporate you know, little stuff, you know, like just fertility t- timing, we incorporate, you know, vitamins, we incorporate acupuncture, like there's just so much that goes that, that that just has to like gel. And people are sometimes afraid to at least see me, because they think that like fertility specialists, oh my god, we're just gonna we just want to do high tech stuff like IVF is the only answer. Well, that's not the truth. There's sometimes really little type of stuff that we just tell people, I just had a patient the other day, who, what did she, what did she tell me? It, it was, it was something that they were doing that was just so simple. I'm like, Oh, she was taking progesterone cream mm-hmm. every day in her cycle. And I'm like, you can't do that. Like progesterone yeah. is really meant to be exposed in the body. And that second half of the cycle, you expose the lining of your uterus to progesterone in the beginning of your cycle. You screwed up. So it's suppress ovulation. Like you, screw, you, screw yeah. up its, you screw up its receptivity. If you have progesterone mm-hmm. going on in the beginning of the cycle and she's like, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, well, let's mm-hmm. just hope stopping that cream is going to be the answer because she already has one baby, but she's, you know, mild ovulatory, mild ovulatory issues and stuff. So, but uh, I'm thinking it might be as easy as that, you know, like simple mm-hmm. little things that we try to look at everything. And again, nothing is, is kind of a one size fits all like approach and which is where acupuncture comes in. So, you know, you see these patients too, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, also it was good for someone isn't good for everyone. So like their friend might be like, perimenopausal and they're using progesterone cream for hot flashes and that sort of thing. So they're using it throughout the whole month, but not for fertility. <laughs> so we have to make sure, you know, right. yeah. so I'm not poo-pooing progesterone cream. Yeah. I mean, for some people it makes them feel great, but you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're not trying to get pregnant. Okay. So let's see. Question number two here. How successful is IVF for those of us with PCOS? Okay. Ridiculously successful. <laughs> and there's no other answer to that question. There are certain things that we like our PCOS patients to do, you know, in preparation for IVF to try and make their eggs healthier. But in general, PCO patients are an interesting crowd because you're not lacking eggs, you're lacking ovulation. Okay. So 
I try and help my PCOS patients if they've got open tubes and good sperm, not do IVF. However, if we've done lesser type of treatments and they have not been successful, IVF is literally the panacea. I mean, it is the answer. I mean, PCO patients usually can make their entire family in one cycle. You know, we can just make the embryos, freeze them, test them, and you can just come back and pick up the kids one by one. So it does depend on age though where PCO patients in their 40s, you know, don't have as high a success as PCO patients in their 30s, still PCO patients in their 40s are still going to yield a multitude of eggs, which is going to lead to a lot of embryos, which is going to lead to a lot of a lot of chances. So PCO in general, IVF is a great, great, great option. Problems with PCO and IVF are sometimes it does put you at risk for ovarian hyperstimulation. However, if we mature your eggs with the proper medicine, we can almost eliminate the chances of hyperstimulation. If we mature your eggs with a different medication, you might be at risk for hyperstimulation, you know, if, if you're creating a lot of eggs. But, you know, we're really conservative and we are now able to help the PCO patient not hyperstimulate and achieve ridiculously high pregnancy success. So it, it's a great idea as long as you're essentially under the age of 43. <laughs> Well, for sure. And nowadays, I don't see that many hyper stimulation either. Oh, thank God. Yeah, it used to be, you know, it used to be a monthly thing. We'd have a patient hospitalized and, and we rarely see we rarely see hyper stim anymore with the new trigger, you know, medicines that we use. Sometimes we get a little fooled. And if the patient's estrogen level isn't as high as we'd expect with the PCO or we trigger them with the alternative medicine. And we don't use a, a what we call a Lupron trigger, but the Lupron trigger has almost made hyperstimulation in the polycystic ovary patient a thing past, which is miraculous in my opinion. So, but you, how do you treat PCO? Like, uh, what will you treat them along with us? So you have special acupuncture, you know, points and you help the PCO patient even before they get to IVF, correct? Yeah. And, and I mean, we did have someone waiting to go to Spain to do IVF over the summer and she couldn't go because of the pandemic. And she, we just did some preparation and she ended up being pregnant naturally. So it can happen a lot with PCOS. We find um, just, you know, using the right combination of um, vitamin D and, and, you know, working on the diet, working on weight loss a little bit um, and helping a little bit with the acupuncture puncture weekly sessions, but that was great. Uh, so it saved her trip to Spain. <laughs> Even now, I think it's still hard to go to Spain. Uh, but I think it's really important to look at all aspects, like the testing you guys do with the nutritionist there. It's so in-depth for PCOS that I'm like, it's good to have that looked at as far as inflammatory markers, you know, all the things like that, that need to be addressed with PCOS and aren't often looked at with a regular checkup. And um, and that's going to prepare for a healthier pregnancy since there is a higher risk of pre gestational diabetes with PCOS. So if we can address that beforehand, that's great. Yeah, um, makes and that's the pregnancy good. so much healthier. All right. Yeah. So I just want to, I missed like, it's, is it, as the feed goes on, I just want to check a question here. So this question was, and I'll go back to the other questions that were submitted previously. I'm 42. I failed IUI recently. Previous IVF seven years ago failed as well. What would be blood tests and other tests that would be done? that I would have done absolutely necessary before I would do another IVF. Again, egg reserve. So testing egg reserve is gonna be number one, testing your values of AMH to see how many eggs you have, testing your FSH. And then again, it sounds like you've had a long infertility history, history if you've done an IVF seven years ago. So clearly seven years ago, you weren't 42. Okay, seven years ago, you were 35. <laughs> okay, so 
before I would do another IVF on you, I would work you up for implantation failure issues to figure out why a 35-year-old didn't get pregnant with IVF and why a 35-year-old hasn't got pregnant in the seven years following her failed IVF. So there are a lot of tests that I would do on you prior to, to say, oh yeah, another IVF is the answer, okay? Because if I do an IVF on somebody, hell, I want it to work, okay? Or I want it to at least give it the best chance of working. We've got a multitude of factors to make an IVF work. We need a normal embryo. So that's gonna be something we discuss. We need a healthy uterus, something we discuss. We need an immune system that's not gonna reject an embryo, something we can discuss. But where IVF is our best treatment out there, okay? We just don't like go into it and say, yeah, 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 this is gonna work, okay? Mm -hmm. We go into it with an evaluation done saying, I've covered this space, I've covered this space, I've covered this space. Now you're gonna have your best chance of success. So there's a bunch of stuff, just, you know, lines are a short question, essentially. But there's a bunch of stuff that I would absolutely recommend before just diving into another IVF. And then where we go here, there's one more and then I'll go back to the ones they submitted earlier. And we have a Facebook question too. Oh, we don't have Let's go with that. Let's go with that. So I got a couple questions up here. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts on pre-prom pregnancy loss and the chances of it happening a second time? Well, again, I practiced obstetrics for seven years. Okay. So again, and I love delivering babies. It's just the sleep deprivation was a little too much. I mean, delivering babies is like a, such a rush. It's the, it's the funnest thing ever. So pre-prom means the membranes ruptured early and it depends on when they rupture as to when the baby is going to be viable. Okay. Most of the time, early rupture of membranes is going to be caused by some sort of infection. And so there are aggressive ways to approach the next pregnancy as far as trying to identify whether or not infection is going to be a factor. And I have one little girl out there that, again, it was a little bit out of the scope of my practice, but I went above and beyond for this young lady. She had had so many early P-prom losses from infection. I mean, I was actually culturing her every three to four weeks in my office. And we actually found an infection at 22 weeks. We started treating with antibiotics. We kept the antibiotics going and she ended up delivering the baby at 26 weeks, but we had our antibiotics mm -hmm. with, along with the, with the high risk doctor and the, and the other doctors and her baby was delivered prematurely, but she's fine now. But infection is one of your major causes of this. And as long as you're working with a perinatologist and OBGYN, who is addressing, you know, the high incidence of bacteria in the vagina. It just has to be addressed. We address it in our practice because again, we know it's important for implantation. So we have a very extensive probiotic regimen that we use vaginally as well as orally to try and maximize the health of the bacteria in the vagina when we do our frozen transfers, when we do our embryo transfers, when we're treating patients. So we really, you know, address this very, very aggressively. But I think a lot of the PPROM stuff has to be addressed with the OBGYN because we're subspecialists. So we see patients with problems. When you're going to your OBGYN, which, you know, are great doctors, all these people see as babies, 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 babies. I mean, again, the complications are like the, the, a minor part of their lives. So when you have a case that you've had a problem in the past, Try to address it with your OBGYN and say, look, this is what happened to me before. What do you think about probiotics? Should I continue them after my IVF? 
What do you think about doing extra vaginal cultures? You know, things like that. Again, I can't speak for them. I just know that when most people promise for infection and there definitely can be, there's a link there. I mean, there's, there's clearly a link with bacteria, vagina crawling up and infecting the water bag. So hopefully I answered um, her question. But it's infection. She wanted to know if there was the fertility link, she said, because she said she had no infection until after rupture, according to pathology. Yeah. So at this point, if you're trying to have another baby, you should have an endometrial biopsy done and get checked for a condition called chronic endometritis, which means that there's bacteria that's basically crawled up into your uterus. It's made a little hole in there and it's causing a chronic inflammatory condition inside the uterus. So, yes, there absolutely is a connection you know, with these things throughout pregnancy. It's just pregnancy care is kind of disjointed because, you know, we take care of you till eight weeks and send you on your merry way. And then, you know, the OBs have a different perspective and the high risk doctors have a different perspective. So yes, infectious etiology is a big thing. And I would get your service cultured with a culture for the, we call it Uniswab. It has, you know, 12 different bacteria in it. And then I would absolutely undergo an endometrial biopsy and make sure that there's not bacteria that are just kind of hanging out near your uterus. Um, and this can be treated. And this can be treated very easily with, you know, a couple of weeks of antibiotics. And then you recheck the cultures and you recheck the biopsy to make sure that um, things have been eradicated. And then this will give another pregnancy its best shot. Thank you, Heather. And I hope that we, um, we are causing for his next pregnancy will go much better. But thank you for your question. Sorry for your loss. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, okay. So this is a question that was submitted earlier. Do you recommend a saline ultrasound before undergoing IVF? Absolutely. That's a, that's a no brainer. <laughs> so as I said earlier, we need three things to go right in order to get pregnant. We need a healthy embryo. We need a healthy uterus. So we do biopsies and we do saline sonograms to make sure there's no growth in the uterus. If you have a polyp, if you have fibroid, if you have scar tissue, if anything inside that uterus, it's going to lower the chances of an embryo implanting. So saline ultrasound is a non-invasive, which I mean by non-surgical, means of evaluating the inside of the uterus for health. And so absolutely, it's, I, we do them every six months because we do see the results change. Yeah, I picture them like, you know, a spaceship landing on Mars and surveying the terrain. <laughs> it's like, okay, there's some good favorable place for landing, you know, but I, I think they're, it's one of the coolest tests. That <laughs> yeah, so it's only got five minutes in the office and we can evaluate whether there's a lump or bump in the uterus that could cause implantation failure or miscarriage. Okay. All right, so we've got another one here. How do you feel about the ERA after a failed second FET? Okay, so ERA study just came out looking at ERA before we do anything, okay? It doesn't help. It does, not, it does not make a difference in live birth. So I think just doing an ERA, doing an ERA because we can. We've done frozen embryo transfers the same way for the last 40 years, estrogen, progesterone, put the embryo in. But I think in the face of having an embryo, now, if the embryo was tested, it's a different story than the embryo was not tested. Because if the embryo was not tested, depending on your age, the embryo was created, depends on the health of that embryo. If you had a failed frozen transfer of a normal tested embryo twice, completely different story than if you had a failed frozen transfer of an embryo that wasn't tested because we put the blame on the embryo. In these reports we get back, when we test the embryos, they make my jaw drop. So patients will have five embryos tested, only two are healthy. The thing is, they all looked beautiful. Mm -hmm. So 
I wouldn't know unless I tested which ones were healthy and which ones weren't. So if you had two frozen transfers, of untested embryos, and we came out and said, oh my gosh, embryo perfect, it's beautiful, it's the most beautiful blasts I've ever seen, and we put it back in, but still have extra chromosomes, still be abnormal. So if you had a failed frozen transfer of two, two times of a tested embryo, I think air is, air is probably a decent thing to think about. Maybe again, you have a recent, excuse me, a receptivity issue and you need to customize the amount of progesterone that your body is exposed to before transfer. So not a bad idea to talk to your doctor about. All right, let's see on the screen here. How high are the chances of having triplets with three dominant follicles? Really depends on your age. Okay. If you have three dominant follicles and you're 25 years old, it's possible. If you have three dominant follicles and you're 42 years old, you're probably not going to have triplets. So the health of the egg is what makes the difference. So the older you get, the more unhealthy eggs you have. So even if you have three follicles, the likelihood of you producing three healthy eggs is extremely low. If you're 25 years old and you have three follicles, the chances of you having three healthy eggs is, eh, it's kind of high. I really can't give you percentages because I haven't had triplets from oral fertility medicine in a while, like ever, but it is, it is possible. And then the type of medicine you took to have those dominant follicles, whether it was Clomid, Femara, or injectable drugs, that also makes a difference because that alters receptivity issues. So the chances are quite low. However, they do exist. I would give you a one to 3% chance range that, that you could have triplets, but not knowing that that's not knowing your age. Okay, so that was that, that one. Okay. So another question that was submitted earlier, is it true that babies born via IVF are at higher risk for heart defects? Okay. So this is true. However, you have to look at the raw numbers. So when you look at the raw numbers, okay, we are talking about very, very, very low numbers. So there was a meta-analysis done in 2018. So a meta-analysis means that we compile like gobs and gobs and gobs of medical literature together. And we lump it all together and we see, all right, if we dump lump this amount of studies together, what do we come up as far as a conclusion? So the study that this patient is, is asking about is a meta-analysis. Let me see how many studies they lumped together. 41 studies. Okay, were identified. Six were case controlled, 35 were cohort studies. Okay. And basically they looked at these studies and they looked at the children of IVF and the children that were spontaneously conceived. So of the children that were IVF, 337 out of 26,000 had a heart defect. Okay. We don't know how severe the heart defect, but had a heart defect. So, which is 1.3%. So 1.3%, extremely low. Then they looked at patients who were conceived spontaneously, naturally. And of those patients, it was, there was almost 2,000 babies with heart defects that were conceived spontaneously, 2,000 babies, but this was out of 287,000 women. And so statistically, that was 0.7%. So when you look at 0.7% in the spontaneously conceived pregnancies, and then it's 1.3% in the IVF pregnancies, this is news, okay? So this is like, you know, twice the rate of heart defects. However, are patients doing IVF for fun? No. Mm -hmm. People who come to IVF have problems. I mean, we're not, people aren't coming into my office, like just, I mean, rarely, 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 just for fun. So there's an underlying component 
to that couple as to why they're not getting pregnant naturally. I mean, when we look back at Darwin and we look back at survival of the fittest and who propagates the race and who doesn't. What we have to look at is that there's some patients who are going to be able to reproduce with the help of these higher technology that might have been weeded out of the race because they have some sort of something in their genetic makeup that's going to predispose them to having a birth defect. But if you want a baby to take the chance that there's a 1.3% chance that maybe my baby will have a heart defect, but a 98.5% chance that they won't. I mean, let's look at that cup half full here. Okay. 98.5% chance my baby will not have a heart defect. Yeah, I do IVF. Okay. I've recommended IVF for my friends, my family, my staff. Okay. And when I look at something where my benefit is I'm going to have a baby where nothing else is working. And if I don't do IVF, I'm never going to have a child versus, well, I'm going to take that tiny risk that, and then, but when you look at it news wise, it's double, you know, the raw data, you have to look at the raw data because again, double sounds scary. And 1.3% in my opinion does not sound scary. So, and just getting sex, 0.7%, your baby could have a heart defect, 0.7%. That's almost 1%. Your baby could have a heart defect. And people are having sex all the time and having babies. So, I mean, I think you have to look at these things from a numbers, like a raw number perspective. But this type of article makes news. This type of article scares people, you know, but it makes news. So in my opinion, to take the risk of a, maybe a 1.3% chance versus never having your own child, I would take it. I've had my family members take it. I've had friends. Uh, so again, this, this is just, sorry, long answer to a short question, but I wanted to kind of explain it because it's something that is on the internet. I mean, you, you read it out there and you're like, oh my God, IVF is so scary. IVF is a means to an end. Okay. IVF is, is a way to have a family, a way to have a child if nothing else is working. And that's the way we use it. It's, you know, we, we don't do this for fun. I mean, we do this, we do this, we recommend this, we, to help you have a family and it works great. And, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of babies. I think oh, I read some sort of statistics somewhere. What I think maybe Australia, that one in 25 babies is IVF now or, or something crazy. I think in the U S it's like one in 70, but in Australia, it's like one in 25. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, oh wow. Yeah, no, it was something I was like, my eyes kind of popped out of my head when I read it. I'm like, that's kind of crazy. But in Australia, it's, it apparently costs $5,000 for an IVF cycle. So it's, it's yeah. fairly economical. Yeah. Um, again, I'm Dr. Ellen Wood. I just want to let you know, thank you for being here. I'm at Dr. Ellen Wood on Instagram. This is Dr. Duro. Thank you so much for taking care of our patients, improving the blood flow, helping them with nutrition, helping them with all of their fertility issues. Your treatment is so crucial to what I do and helping my patients have babies. This was great. Hopefully everyone is following me at, on my Instagram and my Facebook page. And Dr. Duro, say goodnight to everybody because I think Thank things you. are awesome. Thank you, Dr. Wood, as well. <laughs> okay. Thanks, guys. Florida Complete Wellness if you'd like to join us. Bye, everybody on Facebook. <laughs> As we conclude another enlightening episode of Fertile Conversations, we want to extend our deepest gratitude to all of our listeners and those who submitted their questions. Remember, your journey is unique and you're not alone. If you have more questions or topics you'd like us to explore, 
Reach out to us on social media or visit us at floridacompletewellness.com and ivfmd.com. Until next time, stay resilient, stay hopeful, and may your path to parenthood be filled with love and light. This is Farah Duro wishing you strength on your fertility journey. You've got this.